You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Anna Sale. Before we get into it, in this episode, we discuss mental health and mention suicide. If you or someone you love needs help, there are people you can call. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And after July 16th, you can simply dial the number 988. More and more in our country, we are talking about mental health and what it takes to take care of each of ours. World-class athletes and performers are openly acknowledging their mental health diagnoses and taking steps back when they need it. People post on social media about their latest breakthrough in therapy. I feel perfectly comfortable bringing up what I've learned in couples counseling at a dinner party. It's not uniform across all mental health issues, though. Social stigma around depression is different from the stigma around schizophrenia, for example. But overall, Americans have become more accepting of mental health issues in the past 20 years. And yet at the same time, suicide rates have gone up by about a third. There are many complicated, overlapping reasons for this. But the mental health community and Congress are trying to address one key barrier to accessing care this month with a new phone number. Starting July 16th, anywhere in the country, you can dial 988 to get help. Any person experiencing a suicidal crisis, a mental health crisis, a substance use crisis, or any type of emotional distress can dial 988 and be connected to a trained crisis counselor. That's Hannah Wesolowski. She's the chief advocacy officer for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So when somebody calls 988, their call is directed based on their area code to a local call center. The call is the intervention for 988. For about 80 to 98 percent of calls, they can be de-escalated over the phone. You can call from anywhere in the country and get help. But because it's directed to local call centers, there's also been a lot of work to get this huge network ready to field the calls. And they've only had two years to do it. It was only in 2020 that Congress passed legislation that created the new hotline by July 16th, 2022. I talked to Hannah about how 988 could be the start of transforming how we think about supporting our mental health and what more work needs to be done. You work on mental health policy broadly in this country. You see what is broken, what needs fixed. How big a deal is 988, this three-digit hotline number? If, if we think about it as more than a number, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, this is really a once-in-a-generation opportunity to have a fundamental tide shift for part of the mental health system. The mm. fact that we have a model, we know what pieces we need to, to implement, and there is a concerted effort at both the federal level and in states to fund that system is, is really unprecedented. Uh, you know, certainly in the last few decades, we haven't seen anything like this. You know, mental health for so long is just given pennies and scraps. And I think this is mental health's moment. People realize this is something we need to invest in because if we don't, we pay the price down the road. So this has the potential if we treat it as more than a number and really this, this, that it needs to be a crisis system to fundamentally change how we look at mental health in this country. I want to understand, in your view, 
Why is this happening right now? Is it a recognition of increasing suicide rates over the past few decades in the U.S.? Is it a recognition that something has been not functioning properly writ large in the mental health care system in this country? What, what's, why is this happening right now? It's a confluence of a few different things that just came together at one time. One, we do have uh, extraordinarily high suicide rates. We also have really high overdose rates in this country. And if we look at some of the other stats, they're really startling. You know, between 2015 and 2020, one in four fatal police shootings were of people with mental illness. About 2 million times each year, people with mental illness are booked into our nation's jails. There's a high criminalization of people with mental health conditions. But when you add on to that, the mental health crisis that this country was in before COVID, but certainly um, the rate that that has accelerated because of the pandemic, I think there is a broad bipartisan recognition that something needs to change. The way that we respond to crises right now is not effective. More often, we we are criminalizing a person in crisis rather than connecting them to the help that they need. So this conversion is set to happen July 16th, soon. Yes. Is, is the system ready? You know, the Federal Communications Commission uh, set July 16th as the date when phone companies had to direct any calls or texts made to 988 to that National Suicide Prevention Lifeline network. So in a way, it's a technical deadline, but it's not going to end on July 16th. We've always known that this is going to be a multi-year effort. You don't build a, a, a essentially new system in two years. Um, I can say we're in a much better place today than we were six months ago. Um, but there's been tremendous work done in states across the country to build up that capacity and make sure that when people call, there's someone there to answer. For the podcast I regularly host, Death, Sex, and Money, we've been doing some reporting about efforts to get two local call centers up and running in Wyoming, the state that had the highest suicide rate in the country in 2020. I talked to one person who operates a lifeline there, Ralph Nieder-Westerman, about being able to say, yes, I understand what it's like to live in a Wyoming community. Here's what he told me. I spoke to a woman who said, many times they begin, I'm not suicidal, but, and I listened, and she said, you're not going to understand what it's like. I have all of these things going on in my life, and you don't know what it's like to live in a small town. And I said, I live in Grable. Hmm. You could hear the sigh. You could hear the sense of relief. You know exactly what this is like. I live in Cody. And I was tempted to say, and that's the big city I go to to go shopping. There are specific needs around this in Wyoming, like knowing what the local resources are to suggest next steps, or even to get what's happening in the local economy so you can understand a person's particular stresses. But geography is just one part of finding understanding on the other side of a phone line. I asked Hannah about whether 988 is accessible and if the cultural competency is there for LGBT communities, for example, or whether there are languages spoken beyond English and Spanish. 
it's a work in progress, to be perfectly blunt. There's, you know, a number of efforts that are ongoing to make sure that there's a diversity in the workforce, that the people answering the calls are representative of the communities that they are serving, but also that there is cultural competency in that workforce. There's also a need at the local level for, you know, developing additional training depending on the constituency of that community, what unique needs may they have that we need to address. Additionally, at the national level, there's work to create specialized services for LGBTQ youth, for example, who have um, very high rates of suicidal ideation. Uh, So that's an ongoing effort as well. Translation services are available in about 150 languages, but Spanish is currently the only language that at a national level, um, a a Spanish-speaking crisis counselor would be available. That's not um, available for any other language, although a local call center may have uh, native speakers of other languages on staff. Mm -hmm. I know you're not responsible for this hiring. You are not (laughs) doing the, the hiring for these local call centers, but do you have a sense Has it been difficult to find trained people or people willing to be trained to do this work? Listen, this isn't an easy job. It's probably one of the harder jobs out there because you're talking to people on sometimes the worst day of their lives. Um, so it's it's a difficult job and certainly building up the workforce to the extent that they need it to really meet that demand um, has been a challenge. Are we going to have enough people answering the calls? And there are lots of efforts across the country to ramp up that workforce, but we need bodies. We need people willing to do it. Um, and we need to make sure that the people we have answering those calls don't burn out because it is such a tough job. Yeah. Is there enough money to pay people who are answering these calls what they deserve for the skilled work that they're doing? Bluntly, no. (laughs) Um, They're, you know, local call centers traditionally have financed themselves. It's either state funding and local funding grants. Um, These are not federally funded uh, call centers, uh, even though it's a a national network. Uh, Earlier this year, the first time grants were made available uh, to states to fund local call centers uh, came out. It's about $105 million spread across the country, which is a huge step forward, but really only about a fraction of what it takes to run these call centers, which is about $560 million. So there's a lot more funding needed. Do you think that 988 having this three-digit phone number and eventually a marketing campaign that's going to tell people about how to access help quickly, privately, on their own, do you think it's going to make us think differently about how we view mental health and seeking mental health care in the U.S.? I really do think that 988 will help us view mental health in a much different way. Um, If getting help is normalized, uh, I think that'll go a long way to reducing the stigma that we still so often see around mental health conditions. And I also think that this 988 crisis system can be a jumping off point for dealing with people before they get to crisis, after they're in crisis, that really it's one component of the mental health continuum of care. Um, And if we can get this right, that really gives us a roadmap to how to build out other parts of the mental health system. A mental health crisis is nothing to be ashamed of, and why shouldn't we have the resources in place to address it? Do you worry, though, that someone who is answering this invitation to reach out for help, they reach someone locally, they're connected to somewhere where they can access care, and then they're told, you have to wait weeks and weeks for an appointment, or 
you're not eligible for assistance to pay for this. Like, do do you worry that the the larger parts of the system are not set up to respond to what could be quite a large demand for help? I I do worry about that. It keeps it's it's one of my many things keeping me up at night as I think about this. We have so much work to do when it comes to mental health in this country, um, and certainly just focusing on crisis care is not going to be enough. There are not enough mental health providers for people to get in and get appointments. There's not enough insurance coverage or enough providers taking insurance for people to get in network care. Um, When people do have more serious uh, mental health crises and might need uh, in in patient care, there's often not enough beds available. So we have a lot of challenges. Um, and that's a, a real concern. But this is a starting point. We can't think that July 16th is mission accomplished. We're closer to the starting line than the finish line. Hmm. Who is 9884? Who do you picture? Who do you hope will be helped that might have been missed before? 988, you know, when I think about who might use it, um, I think the really amazing thing is it's such a range of people. I can think about parents who are worried about their teenage uh, child who's pulled away and has become isolated. Um, You know, I can think about the teenager who might be experiencing suicidal ideation or a mother who recently gave birth who is really struggling. Um, It could be a, a person who's experiencing some paranoia and doesn't know what is happening and needs help. Somebody who's engaging in self-harm and, uh, you know, is is really scared by what's happening. You know, there are so many people that could potentially benefit from this. You know, anyone who's struggling with what's going on in the world and is feeling intense emotional distress, you know, there's there's really no limit on who can use this. This is going to be a resource for anyone who's really struggling, who really needs help for themselves or someone they care about. And, uh, you know, we've we've never had that before. Hmm. You know, previously we called this the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And while they did handle a range of crises, a lot of people didn't think it was the resource for them. I'm very hopeful that people will learn about 988 and think that it's a resource that can help them or someone they care about when they truly need it. And address that critical first step of making them feel not so alone. Exactly. Hannah, thank you so much for talking with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Hannah Wesolowski. She's the Chief Advocacy Officer at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And once again, if you or someone you love is experiencing any kind of emotional distress, there are people that can help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one 800 and after July 16th, you can simply dial 988. If you want to hear more from Ralph Niederwesterman about how the 988 rollout is going in Wyoming, you can hear more of my reporting over at the show I usually host, Death, Sex, and Money. You can find it at deathsexmoney.org. Coming up, a lot of biopics have been coming out lately. A skeptic of the genre gives us her top picks. Stick around. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Anna Sale. We're going to talk movies now. 
Movie theaters are bustling this summer as people are leaving their couches and turning out to see some of their favorite characters from big movie franchises like Top Gun, Toy Story, Jurassic Park, and of course, the Marvel Universe. But today, we're talking about another kind of movie crowd pleaser, the biopic. You're looking for trouble? You came to the right place. You're looking for trouble? Look right in my face. This Elvis biopic has earned over $150 million globally so far. Later this year, you'll be able to check out a film about Weird Al Yankovic starring Daniel Radcliffe. And a Madonna flick is coming too. So we thought we'd use the Elvis-sized window in the cultural conversation to talk about biopics in general when they're really not great movies, and when they're actually quite good and become movies that stand the test of time. So think of this as an alt-Elvis film festival, or depending on your stance, maybe even an anti-Elvis film festival. And we asked pop culture happy hours Aisha Harris, world-renowned biopic skeptic, to come on and talk about this with us. There are many types of biopics, and I I think whenever I think about biopics, I think of the worst kinds, which are the (laughs) the kinds that are clearly gearing for an Oscar, the kinds that are very, very basic in that they are about a, a... a figure. It goes from the beginning of their life to the end of their life. It hits all the, the the expected notes of whether it's drug addiction or abuse or um, the highs and lows of careers. And um, anytime there's like prosthetics involved or like heavy makeup or a, a quote unquote transformation of the actor, something like uh, the Iron Lady by with Meryl Streep playing Margaret Thatcher uh-huh. or Leonardo DiCaprio playing J. Edgar Hoover. Anytime you have that sort of thing happening, it just makes me, my eyes glaze over. I'm not interested. But I'm sure we're going to talk about this, you know, in our conversation. But when I'm thinking about it more, there's a lot of biopics that I actually do like. But they aren't so obviously the sort of oscar Beatty biopics. It's interesting that it's the oscar Beattyness that turns you off. For me, I feel a little bit just, um, it makes me cynical as a movie consumer, a really big biopic. I'm like, yes, I know that there's, it's it's sort of like a movie franchise without having to be a franchise when yes. you say, hey, it's Elvis. It's basically, <laughs> it reads to me like a Marvel movie, like a, you know, Hollywood execs feeling really smart about a built-in moneymaker that they don't have to think too hard about. <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. <laughs> but that aside, some of them, I, I can get into a real soaring biopic. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, immune to nostalgia. Um, but I want to know about the biopics that you do find that you have been interested in. What, when you think about the biopic that stands out for you as one of the best, um, what comes to mind? Well, so I think my favorite biopic of all time is probably it's also just like one of my favorite movies of all time and this is going to be a movie I think a lot of people are very familiar with but it is Goodfellas which of course you don't think of as a biopic per se but it totally is it's just you know you're just funny it's you know the way you tell the story and everything funny how I mean what's funny about it Tommy no you got it all wrong oh oh, Anthony He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Funny how. 
you know, it's Martin Scorsese at the top of his game. You have the late, great Ray Liotta playing Henry Hill, who all his life he wanted to be a gangster. You have Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci. And it is one of those movies that covers the entirety of, or most of this person's life up to a point and the downfall. And it's and it's got mobsters and gangsters and all these things. But it's also just like so well crafted. It, it's, it's a long movie, but it moves at a very swift pace. And and it's just such a classic, uh, classic movie, and yet it's a biopic. And I think it it does it has such a great cast, and it's not just about those performances, but it's it is about the way the the director really paces the film and and draws you in over time, and really understands these characters and each character's like very specific um, personalities. And so, Goodfellas would have to be, you know at the top for me when it comes to to biopics and how to make a really great, compelling one that stands the test of time. That is a really, really, really good entry into our biopic film festival because I, <laughs> I would never, off the top of my head, when I think of Goodfellas, I think movie classic. I do not think biopic. Like, how did you... When did you realize, oh, my gosh, this fits this fits the bill for a biopic? I mean, when you asked me to talk about this, I was like, <laughs> wait a second. This movie is based on a, a true story. You know, obviously, details are are fudged. And and even Henry Hill himself, the, the Ray Liotta character, you know, there were questions about veracity and how much was exaggeration and whatnot. But I, I think it's just such a great it, it's not just a biopic. It's also a crime story. It's a family story. And it's a it, it's about uh, you know, ambition and the quote unquote American dream. So I, I just think it's a great, great example in that in that genre. Yeah, also about belonging and not belonging and trying to belong. I, I, I just watched that on a plane uh, not too long ago. And I was reminded what a fantastic, amazing movie it is. Um, do you have a favorite biopic that fits into the sort of like music box category, jukebox category, a, a big you know, music personality like Elvis um, that you feel like was done in a more interesting way? Yeah. So for me, one movie that I've particularly loved is the 2015 film um, Bessie, which was yeah. actually, it debuted on HBO. It was a, you know, a TV movie, but it feels like a very grand, big movie. It's about the legendary blues performer Bessie Smith. It stars Queen Latifah, who is just fantastic in this role. It also features Monique, who is playing Ma Rainey, another legendary blues singer who was sort of a mentor for a bit to the Bessie Smith until she became very jealous of Bessie Smith. And it also has the late, great Michael K. Williams playing Bessie Smith's um, sort of volatile lover and husband. And what I love about this film is that it doesn't shy away from the more um, perhaps unsavory parts of her life. And it doesn't fall into all of these like very heavy handed cliches. And we also get to see a black woman who, you know, in the 1920s was living a life very openly as a queer woman. And I think it's just such a really fun film that I think a lot of people have forgotten about. But it does a really good job of avoiding a lot of the sort of Elvisy cliches that we see in a lot of biopics. So, and the performances are just fantastic. So, I really think people should seek that out if they haven't seen it yet. Mm, and and tell me what you mean by Elvisy cliches. Uh, you know the. I guess when I say Elvisy cliches, I think of the the sort of rise and fall. Like we know what's going to happen here, and I think 
part of the th- the problem with Elvis, like you said, the marvelization of everything. We know so much about Elvis, or even if you're not a huge fan or a younger person, like you know the vague things about it. Whereas Bessie Smith is a, we haven't seen many biopics about black women to begin with. And so already that puts it at a advantage, I think, of being different from other biopics. And the fact that she's not perhaps as well known as Elvis helps. So you get to learn more about this woman who a lot of people have forgotten about or may not remember. Um, whereas Elvis, it's like, yes, of course, we're going to hear Hound Dog. Of course, we're going to hear all of these things. And and I, I really think that Bessie kind of sidesteps that in part because the subject is um, less well known. Can I tell you one that I really love, even though it does follow the kind of behind the music uh, narrative arc that you're skeptical of? Do you know the movie Superstar? Yes. I actually haven't seen it, but I'm very familiar with it. Yes. Well, what I love about this movie, uh, it's the Karen Carpenter story, an experimental film that Todd Haynes made back in 1988. And it stars not live-action people or cartoons. It is modified Barbie dolls acting out um, all of the, the scenes and moments of Karen Carpenter's life. And Karen Carpenter, of course, died of anorexia uh, after struggling with anorexia nervosa. Um, also, I just, her her music, her voice, I could listen to all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but this is one of those movies that um, they didn't get the proper licensing. So it's not something <laughs> that you can easily download and pay for. It's one you have to find a copy of. But what I love about that is it it is a very familiar, I, I knew the story of Karen Carpenter. I knew her music. Um, but I did feel like this film was showing me this story in a new way, um, also by making me think about body representations by having Barbie dolls act it all out. I really think this diet of yours is the problem. I mean, Karen, you look really thin. I like the way I look. Karen, you starve yourself. All you ever eat is salad and iced tea. I really don't know why you're making such a big deal out of this. I mean, I love Todd Haynes. He's one of my favorite directors. And so it's it's definitely a um, a blind spot for me that I have not seen it. But I I want to see it. It sounds really fascinating. And I'm glad to know I can maybe find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube.com. I don't know how long. <laughs> maybe <laughs> not, after not, this airs, it'll get pulled out. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back to Bessie, which you were describing as a biopic that's, that's you know, felt like it was unusual and that it got made. Um, are there artists or are there people that you think, I wish there were a movie being made about this person right now? Well, I think I always fall back on, like, I'd much rather see a documentary, like a really well-made documentary, um, as opposed to a biopic. But... I think it would be really interesting to see a biopic about Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee, who were Mm. a very storied, long, they were together for decades uh, as a husband and wife team, but they also collaborated a lot in film and on the stage. And they had such an interesting life. They were also part of the civil rights movement, very active in that. And I think it would be interesting to see that on screen. I don't know who I would cast, which is the problem. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's a there's a warped parallel, uh, a weird universe where perhaps Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, who are often 
compared mm-hmm. to them, even though I don't necessarily think they should be. But there's a there's a weird world where that could happen, perhaps, uh, where you have an actual husband and wife team playing this storied husband and wife team. But yeah, I would be curious to see um, a biopic about them. Wow. I feel excited for whoever would get cast in those roles. What an incredible opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be unknowns, I think. It would have to be unknowns. Yeah. And Aisha, when the day comes that you are the subject of a biopic, who do you think should play you? Oh, man. So I've I've had people compare me, at least the way I sound and sort of carry myself to Carrie Washington, which, I mean, she's older than I am. So, like, I don't really know how that would work. But, like, um, I could maybe see that being being a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because I, you know, she's kind of, she seems kind of nerdy in a way and and can be, can be nerdy in a way. So like, I, I think maybe Carrie Washington. Does that sound, I wonder if that makes me sound vain. Because like, it's like Carrie Washington is just like beautiful, wonderful person. She We're going to own it. And we're going to say that's <laughs> gonna... exactly the perfect casting. <laughs> Because um, she's a little bit nerdy. She's also very fun. She brings, yeah. and she also, she has this range of like, when she speaks sometimes, you know, scandal, Carrie Washington, you listen to her and you let her tell you what's up. And That's then true. also she, she can, uh, she can be so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that choice. I actually, m- my choice to play me would also be somebody who's slightly older than me. Um, and it would be Jennifer Garner because we went to the same high school in West oh, Virginia. Yeah, I can see Canal that. County Public Schools. <laughs> <laughs> Clear your calendar, Jennifer. Yeah, (laughs) Jennifer and Carrie. (laughs) Get on it. (laughs) Aisha, I have another question for you. Would you be down to stick around and play a game with me? Absolutely. I love games. Great. Coming (laughs) up, who said that? And we're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Anna Sale here with NPR's very own Aisha Harris. And Aisha, we're joined by a friend of yours, KPCC and LAist Antonia Sarahito. Welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. I'm glad to have you together. How do the two of you know each other? <laughs> It's an interesting <laughs> oh. story. <laughs> uh, do you want me to tell it, Antonia? Or do you want to tell well, it? Well, maybe the most relevant to this is that we used to like r- do a movie night together. We did. Yeah, that's, yes. We did like a, what we called Nyokin movie night, which was Antonia's idea. And we kind of programmed really terrible, fun movies to watch with folks. And we'd, you know, host them at her house or at a local bar in Brooklyn. It was very, very fun. <laughs> Wow, that's like the ultimate comfort food, like comfort food movie and comfort food food. Yes. Gnocchi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's wonderful. Okay, well, we are going to play together a game called Who Said That? Who am I saying that? Hollywood Biopic Edition. Because we're doing things a little differently this week. Instead of sharing a quote that you might have heard in the news this week, we are going to stay on theme and share quotes from notable biopics. And to make things a little easier, they are all movies about performers. Okay? Okay. Oh, okay, okay. Here are the rules. You guess who said it or what film the quote is from. 
There are no buzzers, just yell out the answer when you know it. And of course, there are no prizes, just bragging rights and your own personal pride. But it's still a competition. Um, (laughs) Are you two ready? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here is the first quote. When I know they're listening, when I know I really have them, I couldn't sing off key if I tried. I am exactly the person I was always meant to be. I'm not afraid of anything. This could be anyone. It could be anyone. (laughs) Really, it could be anyone who has a beautiful singing voice. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say Judy Garland. Okay. Also, literally, couldn't tell you what movie is about Judy Garland. Well, there was Judy. (laughs) It was literally called Judy. Well, there you go. I was actually, that, Judy Garland was actually the first thing that came to my mind. Um, it's not Selena, is it? I'm going to give you a hint. Mm-hmm. Picture this person saying this maybe while wearing a white tank top and very light washed blue jeans in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the UK, maybe throwing his fist up in the air. Bowie? Uh, the, uh, from Queen, from Queen. Yeah. Oh, I totally for I think I blocked that terrible movie from my brain. <laughs> oh, I love it. I will eat up anything with Freddie Mercury. Well, I'm not entirely sure that's the album you promised us. No, it's better than the album we promised you. It's better than any album anyone's ever promised you, darling. It's a bloody masterpiece. That is Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody, the 2018 film, which is, of course, all about Queen. (laughs) And something I didn't know is that Sacha Baron Cohen was first asked to play Freddie Mercury. But that plan ended up falling apart. You knew that? I I did know that. Um, But instead, we got Rami Malek and those dentures that he wore. (laughs) (laughs) Those prosthetic teeth. (laughs) That's against your biopic policy. I know the dentures. Okay. Next up. This well-known monologue begins with the line, we've got to be twice as perfect as everybody else, and continues, we got to be more Mexican than the Mexicans. Selena. Selena. Yes. (laughs) I I was a little early. (laughs) That is the 1997 movie, Selena. Come on, Dad. We're Mexican. No, we are Mexican-American, and we got to prove to the Americans how American we are. we got to be more Mexican than the Mexicans and more American than the Americans, both at the same time. It's exhausting. Jennifer Lopez, of course, played Selena. She was just 26 when she shot that role. Let the record uh, show that I did know the answer, okay? Yeah. I worked on the Anything for Selena podcast, so if I didn't get that, I would be. it would be horrifying for me. So <laughs> I just said it first or whatever, but I did know it. Do you want to say anything about that movie in particular? Are you a fan? I love. I mean, that movie is a classic. It's beautiful. I worked on an episode for that show specifically about butts. I was the lead producer on that episode. Oh, that and, was a great uh, episode. Maria Garcia, Very good the podcast episode. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you. And Maria Garcia, the host, like it was so great. She the first she knew like one of the topics she wanted to cover was butt politics specifically. But we spent a lot of time analyzing the opening sequence of that movie um, and. It's, I think it's one of the best biopics ever, probably. It's a great movie. And J-Lo, I don't think has ever been better. Well, other than Out of Sight, I don't think she's ever been better than Selena. Hustler's up there. Oh. Yeah. How can yeah, I forget Hustlers. Hustlers? Yes. Okay. We're moving to a new musical universe for this one. The next quote is, Sire, 
Only opera can do this. In a play, if more than one person speaks at the same time, it's just noise. No one can understand a word. But with opera, with music, with music, you can have 20 individuals all talking at the same time, and it's not noise. It's a perfect harmony. Love you and Rose? Good guess. Mm, opera. opera. Les Mis. <laughs> Les Mis is not <laughs> a biopic. <laughs> oh. uh, I'm going to give you a hint. This is from the mid-80s. Oh, Amadeus? This movie. Yes. Okay. A movie I, I still have not seen, but I know I need to. It doesn't really work, does it? That movie, I can remember growing up, my father was just convinced it was the best movie that had ever been made. Ever. And so it's it's a wonderful movie. Um, the film was nominated for more than fifty awards total, including not only but two, including not one but two nominations at the Academy Awards in the Best Actor category. It is a really fine movie. Okay, now here is the last one. Going into this final question, the score is two Aisha, one Antonia. So we're either going to have a victory for Aisha or Antonia. You can tie it up. This is the last one. The quote is, speak a little truth and people lose their minds. Ray. (laughs) Good guess. This is a more recent film than Ray. And not about just one person, but a group of performers. Dreamgirls. Straight out of Compton? Yes! Okay, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) I was like... (laughs) That's the film Straight Outta Compton. The soundtrack album actually debuted at number one on the rap albums chart. Were you all fans of this movie? I had some some issues here and there, but overall, as a as biopics go, I remember just really being into just how invigorating and how political it felt at the time. Yeah, I remember liking it. I remember the opening scene. I think like had some very cool like aerial shots. Also, oh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And that quote, of course, was performed by O'Shea Jackson Jr. playing his own father, Ice Cube, in the film Straight Outta Compton. Congratulations, Aisha. You are the winner of this week's Who Said That? How Do You Feel? It's okay, Antonia. I'm so glad you're here. I knew knew Aisha invited me to beat me. I was like, she wanted an easy target. (laughs) Because I played trivia with Aisha in the past, and she's good. Like, she knows her stuff. All right. But I, I was honored to even get the opportunity to come here and lose to my friend. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, good sportsmanship all around. You love to see it. <laughs> Thank you both for this great game. Thanks again, Antonia and Aisha, for joining me. It has been a lot of fun. Oh, thanks, thanks for having Anna. us. All right, this episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Andrea Gutierrez, Leah McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujang Lee. Our intern is Ejianeta Aragon. Our editors are Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sangweni. And our big boss is NPR Senior VP of Programming, Anya Grundman. All right, until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Anna Sale. You can find my regular podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, wherever you listen. And you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. <laughs>